Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The stakes are high for millions of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender employees. The Supreme Court will decide whether federal law bars employers from discriminating against gay and transgender people. It's a question that has divided the federal appeals court and federal agency. Joining me is Michael Dorff, a professor at Cornell Law School. So, Michael, this is about interpretation. Interpreting the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What's the basic question in all three cases that the court will consider? Whether the language in Title VII, which is the uh, provision of that act that governs employment discrimination, that forbids sex discrimination, encompasses discrimination based on sexual orientation in two of the cases and gender identity in the third case. Federal appellate courts across the country have considered the issue. How have they come out? So for a long time, uh, the courts said that sex discrimination does not include sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination, but the trend in recent years has been in the other direction, uh, partly, I think, in response to the broader acceptance of Uh, equal rights for LGBT individuals, uh, and partly in response to the uh, U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's own determination to treat those forms of discrimination as covered by the sex discrimination prohibition. The issue of sex extending to sexual orientation wasn't part of the conversation in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Does that mean that textualists on the court will find that the law doesn't cover sexual orientation? No, I think on the contrary, there's a very good argument based, strictly speaking, on the text that the uh, intentions of the lawmakers um, that were not expressed in the text don't matter. There is a a very important case from the late 1990s involving uh, sexual harassment in which Justice Scalia, writing for the court, said, we're governed by the language of our laws, not the intentions of our lawmakers. And here that language is discrimination based on sex. The most straightforward argument is, if you're firing somebody because of the sex of their partner, and if the person you're firing would not be fired uh, had uh, it been a man rather than a woman, therefore it had been an opposite sexual relationship, well, that's discrimination based on sex, right? That's the nature of mm-hmm. sexual orientation discrimination. The same thing with gender identity, where you're enforcing uh, sex stereotypes. So then, looking at the court as it is now, do you believe that they will find that this ban on workplace discrimination extends to gender identity? I think that there are at least four votes, uh, the Democratic appointees, for that proposition. I think for the conservative justices, the case pits their jurisprudential beliefs, right, this idea that you just follow the text regardless of what it was intended, against their social views, which is I'm not saying that they support sexual orientation discrimination or gender identity discrimination, but they probably think that this is something that the society needs to come to independently and that never really happened or something like that. So I think that the the challenge for the plaintiffs in these cases is to convince at least one of the conservative justices uh, either to just go with your views about text controlling over legislation
legislative intentions, or, and I think this may be an easier road to uh, hold, to say that, look, the uh, society has changed, and people now understand in a way we didn't in the past that sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination are uh, harmful, and they're harmful in many of the same ways that uh, old-fashioned sex discrimination is. The Supreme Court has issued rulings that said same-sex harassment is protected and gender stereotyping. Could they really come out and basically say you can fire someone because they're transgender? Well, I hope not. Um, I, I think what they, they – so there are a number of possibilities. You know, the defendants in these cases – uh, say that the law doesn't apply, but they also say that they didn't engage in the uh, alleged conduct. Uh, I think it's possible that the court would say, well, if you are firing somebody because of stereotyping, uh, that's one thing, but gender identity is something else. Now, I, I think that's a very difficult line to draw, given what we think that gender identity consists of. But uh, I think it would have to turn on some notion that there's a different kind of harm in gender identity or sexual orientation discrimination. I'm, I'm not inclined to make that argument because I don't believe it, but I think that's the sort of thing they would have to say if they were to go there. You clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Is this case in any way a test of whether his legacy in defense of gay rights will withstand a more conservative court? Uh, I think so. Of course, the court did not decide this issue while Justice Kennedy was uh, an active member. And so in that sense, it's not a direct challenge to his legacy. But of course, he was the author of the four major gay rights cases, all finding in favor of uh, the rights of the uh, uh, challengers in those cases. And so if the court were to cut back here, uh, I think that would be a signal that, uh, at the very least, they're not likely to extend his legacy, and potentially uh, it could be in danger itself. So the Trump administration shifted the government's position in a 2017 court filing that federal law doesn't prohibit sexual orientation discrimination. At the Second Circuit, you had the EEOC arguing on one side of the case and DOJ on the other. I know that's happened before, but shouldn't the government have a unified approach in these matters? Uh, you would think so. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the, there is, there's a technical question there, which is, what kind of deference, if any, is owed to the government when the government disagrees with itself. Uh, but I think there's also a question about expertise that in some ways transcends this issue. You know, the, the question is, to what extent do we think the executive branch should be just making political statements versus um, applying some kind of knowledge? And, and that issue arose, you know, in yesterday's oral argument in the Census Bureau case, where the uh, challengers to the inclusion of the citizenship question said, look, this isn't supported by the data. And the government basically argued, well, the uh, 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 Secretary Ross can make a determination for himself. And it's, you know, they didn't say it was political, but everybody knew it was political. So I think that's what's going to be going, going on here as well. It seems as if everyone who was at the argument said that it appears that five conservative justices were going to support the addition of the citizenship question. And my question is, Justice Roberts has said time and time again he doesn't want the court to be a political institution dealing with these political questions. And won't that be so political? Uh, inevitably. But, you know, I think Chief Justice Roberts has had very limited success in tamping down 
strong divisions in big cases. There, I think he, he's had an effect at the margins, and maybe he's affected interpersonal relations on the court. But, you know, on these very divisive questions, the justices' druthers are going to prevail, including his own sometimes. It's a pleasure having you on. Come back again. That's Michael Dorpe. He is a professor at Cornell Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.